Hello and welcome to this week's Hong Kong Heritage, the second part of two programs marking the 30th anniversary of the Tiananmen Massacre in Beijing. In this week's program, former BBC radio journalist Tim Luard recalls his time in the capital and the months leading up to June 4th. Just over the next seven weeks, hope filled the air, which was just unbelievable uh, sense of euphoria and excitement as these protests grew. And social activist Lee Chuk Yan looks back at when he arrived in Beijing on May the 30th, 1989, to help the students and workers on Tiananmen Square. And at that time, also another uh, groups that are working for the whole Chinese people there was the student of Hong Kong, and they are very good. You know, it's a very Hong Kong culture that they are the lo- those that are responsible for the logistic. They are the management of the square. But first, here's a recap of Tim Luard reporting at the time from Beijing after the crackdown. Much of the worst violence was in outlying districts where hospitals said they couldn't cope with the numbers of gunshot wounds. One small hospital alone reported 300 casualties. As dawn broke, several hours after the troops moved in, soldiers in tanks and armoured troop carriers were firing pot shots at youths throwing stones at them in the foreign embassy quarter. Diplomats reported that two members of an American television crew had been beaten up by soldiers and taken away at gunpoint. Crowds gathered on street corners later, shaking their heads in disbelief. One man cycling to work said he saw three bodies lying on the ground near the National Communist Party headquarters, where troops were continuing to fire volleys into the air to drive away the occasional lingering demonstrator. Students were asking the people of Peking to strike in protest at the military action. Much of the morning traffic consisted of military vehicles and ambulances. State radio quoted a commentary by the Liberation Army Daily saying the troops had moved in to protect the people of Peking. Since the Prime Minister Li Peng declared martial law two weeks ago, Chinese leaders have said repeatedly that the army would not be used against the people. It's likely to be some time before the political effects of the night's events become fully clear. But as the nation awakens to the horror of what has happened, some foreign diplomats are saying that they can only conclude, as the power struggle of the past week deepened, that army leaders simply lost patience and decided to stage what amounted to a coup. Tim Luard reporting for the BBC in Beijing in June 1989. This week I talked with Tim from his home in the UK about those events. I'd been based in Beijing uh, in the BBC Bureau for almost two years when uh, Hu Yaobang, the former liberal leader, died. And uh, I was alone in the office that day. I filed a report and then went down to the campus of Beijing University and was looking at the notice boards full of ads for guitars for sale and that sort of thing. And one or two people were putting up posters which uh, were, were fairly unprecedented in the time. that They said a wise man has died and bad men are still living and watched the crowds grow. And that night was the first uh, march towards Tiananmen Square. And just over the next seven weeks, hope filled the air, which was just unbelievable uh, sense of euphoria and excitement as these protests grew. You know, we, there were midnight marches and girlfriends on the back of students' bicycles. And then more and more people came, a thousand, ten thousand teachers, workers, official party organizations and um, official newspaper people came. The traffic police 
joined in and the waiters were running out with food. The entire mood of the Chinese capital was transformed before that people had been cowed. You know, Beijing depends on stability, the byword for the Chinese leadership. And Tiananmen Square, of course, is sacrosanct, the center of political power. And the idea that these students were placing portraits of Hu Yaobang opposite the one of Mao Zedong and then eventually creating their own goddess of democracy. The entire city was swept up in it, and it soon became clear that the same thing was happening in other cities, up to 80 cities across the nation. I, I went to Shanghai, and there was a march of a million people there May the 4th. And the soldiers were brought in, but many soldiers were clearly sympathetic too. They, they weren't doing anything. Um, I mean, even in our office, there were official party uh, lift ladies who, who took us up to uh, our office and they had always scowled you know and during the seven weeks they, their faces lit up they, they were actually saying you know long live the students uh, students do have a, a history of leading the way in, in protest in China and people do have incredible respect for them when people in the west say oh it's just a bunch of students killed in the square it, it was actually so much more than that, because everybody was, was joining in. It, the, the country was really on, on the verge of revolution. I was in Beijing at that time because it is a movement in Hong Kong that are very, very uh, strong and popular among the people. Because I think the pe for the people of Hong Kong, it's high hope at that time. You know, when we witnessed the students and people uh, in China fighting for democracy, we are all very much touched by what they are doing, their bravery, uh, because, you know, in this sort of a democracy will have never, never happened in such a large scale in China. And so everyone in Hong Kong suddenly become very much concerned and uh, want to show their support. So there's lots of demonstration. And of course, I was one part of one of the organizers of the demonstration at that time. And also there's a lot of fundraising. So in that context of uh, support, then we come up with about 22 million Hong Kong dollar at that time. And then the Hong Kong Alliance had to decide what to do with that 22 million. And then we decided that, oh, maybe we should have a delegation to Beijing to support the movement and tell the students, the intellectuals, the workers, all the civil society groups that are occupying Tiananmen Square that we want to, Hong Kong people support them and, and, and want them to win, to have a victory, to have democracy in China. And so I was one of the delegation to go to Beijing. Four of us went there. And therefore, we, we started on the 30th of May. Hu Yabang is clearly the spark that set it off. But the mood had been changing in the two years I'd been there, that there were democracy salons, intellectuals were speaking out, the iron control and hardline that had existed before was beginning to ease. The signs of political reform, Hu Yabang had played a part in that. He, he was dismissed. But when he died, I, I think the students were in a mood to suddenly proclaim him a, a real hero, although he certainly never called for complete democracy or anything like that. And so he became the initial symbol uh, for the protests. But it soon spread. It was a case of power to the people, finally, and freedom and anti-corruption and a host of other issues. But uh, the interest of the world was growing day by day, and I was in the Beijing office with two other BBC 
colleagues and we were all three of us filing ceaselessly for for seven weeks you know up up to 15 dispatches a day each but all the various outlets i was seeing you know rthk2 and abc and and other broadcasting stations and then the bbc alone has innumerable local radios and tv stations and the world service with an audience of 150 million including most importantly the chinese service and that was really how the um, people outside Beijing got to hear of it and how the protest spread to dozens of, of other cities. And when, when we went out on the street, you know, we were pretty much mobbed when they heard we were from the BBC. There, there were posters saying, thank you, BBC. Uh, other people appealed to us to, to tell the world, we depend on you, they said. The whole city was carried away. But I think Hu Yabang himself was forgotten about by the final stages of the protests after Gorbachev had visited and people had been inspired by reports of glasnost, perestroika and everything. And they, they used that to completely upstage the historic Sino-Soviet uh, rapprochement. And at that time also another uh, groups that are working for the whole Chinese people there was the student of Hong Kong. And they are very good. You know, it's a very Hong Kong culture that they are the lo- those that are responsible for the logistics. They are the management of the square. So we said that, okay, since you guys are already managing the square in terms of logistic uh, and supply, and, uh, and the students in, in the square trust them, and there are certain division of work, the Beijing students and the Chinese scholars and intellectuals will be political face. But then the management of the square or uh, logistic and supply was supported by the students in Hong Kong. Yeah, there's a lot of things to be do, done in the square. Lots of, you know, every day there are hundreds and thousands of people there, you know, maybe 100,000, maybe 200,000. It depends on each day is different. There's a lot of tents. So where are the tents from? You know, we, that is the, something that we need to supply. And that was supplied by the students from Hong Kong. And then uh, the food and water and everything and also medical support. And therefore, all the support work was done by the students in Hong Kong. I think that we should also appreciate the fact that the Hong Kong students at that time are the sort of vanguard of the movement in Hong Kong. They went there already in the very beginning and to support. And therefore, the whole link between Hong Kong and the Beijing is very, very much represented by the student. Also, of course, represent also by the work that we uh, done in Hong Kong, you know, the mobilization and the support. In the square on the night before when the troops had made an initial advance with, with armed personnel carriers, but not actually opening fire. And as they had for, for weeks previously, the people who had gathered with buses across the road and other blockades uh, pushed them back. And in, in the end, the soldiers either said, oh, yes, we should support the students, or they, they just drifted away. Um, but I'd, I'd been up till 5 a.m. that day. Um, by the time I woke up, in fact, my wife had a detached retina. It had just been revealed two days before. I had to drive her to the airport past hundreds of army lorries who weren't actually advancing. But when I got back to the office, we heard the sound of gunfire, the crumps of tanks, and uh, the phone just didn't stop. My two colleagues were out, James Miles was out, where the troops were actually coming in to the west of the city. Simon Long was near the square. I had to man the phones for a while and send out the first reports that would come flooding in. 
By the time I got to Tiananmen Square, the troops had taken control of it, really. There, there were armored columns, but on the way there, I saw bodies in the street. I raced up to the sixth floor of the Beijing Hotel, which overlooks the, the edge of the square, and looked down, and my most vivid memories were of the, the blood-stained white shirts of those who'd been shot and, and were, had been laid out on these three-wheeled bicycle carts with the rickshaw drivers picking them up from the road and, and pedaling them furiously to hospital. Uh, in, in one nearby hospital that I went to, uh, the bodies were, were piled up in a mortuary sort of adjunct to the hospital. And in the wards themselves, it was complete chaos. The injured were being treated in these crowded rooms. Uh, the floors were, were soaked in blood and people were, were screaming. That there was just this complete sense of shock and, and outrage and terror and anger. I was there on June 3rd uh, and I remember that I was visiting uh, at that time the tent of the workers. Because, of course, as a unionist in Hong Kong, uh, I have a particular role of supporting the workers' movement because that's the first autonomous workers' organization in China since uh, 1949. And uh, we hope that the workers can get organized and become an independent union. But, of course, our aspiration for independent union was immediately crushed on that night. Because I think around about 10 or 11, I was talking to the workers there. And suddenly saw everyone rise up and left the tent and said to me that, you know, you go away because the army are coming in. We are out to try to block the army from coming in into the square. So everyone left. And, and then, of course, I also go out and then saw it's a chaotic situation when everyone is trying to run to the Tiananmen Chang'an Street because the, the saying is everyone at that time heard that the army had already started shooting at the people and tanks are rolling in uh, from two sides of the Chang'an Street, the main road in uh, Beijing. And the people told me that you must go back not to remain in the square. So I decided I went back to the Beijing Hotel, which is just actually outside the Chang'an Street. That's the night, it's a very dark night of massacre. You heard a lot of gunshots and a lot of noise and people are running. And then you suddenly saw the Tiananmen Square dark. The whole Tiananmen Square, the lights gone off and then you're thinking, what is happening in the square? And then the dawn come and then you start to see people with uh, the rickshaw driver trying to move the bodies into the hospital and then you see body uh, on the rickshaw, on the tricycle. And then you start uh, seeing the tanks coming in from the view of the Beijing hotel. So, you know, the army had gone in. There was total confusion. No one knew how many had, had died, but there, there were dozens in, in that hospital. You, you couldn't tell how many other hospitals they were being taken to, but the Chinese Red Cross at the time said 2,400 had died, and they said the next day. But no one knows in the square itself. Very few reporters were there to see what happened. But this image people, at least in the West, have of uh, you know a bunch of students being shot in, in the square, it doesn't begin to tell the whole story uh, because it was really all over the city. It, were coming in. I mean, I was up on the balcony of the Beijing Hotel and we were being fired at by troops that were, were passing by. When I later went around the city, I went to visit an elderly Chinese writer I knew and he, he and his wife showed me the bullet marks on their balcony. I mean, whole, whole families who were watching what was going on were fired at. But 
to get a clear picture of just how many died is, is not possible. How long did you remain in Beijing after that? Well, I was there for the next few days. The colleague from the South China Morning Post, actually Seth Faison, who I was sharing a room with at, at the Beijing Hotel, you know, keeping constant watch over this occupied square and the col columns of armoured vehicles and the helicopters and everything else, he and I eventually thought it was safe to slip out of the hotel. We walked up Chang'an Boulevard towards the, the square from the west and the soldiers took pot shots at us. We, we saw grisly evidence that the soldiers had died too. There were the remains of, of one tank driver that was splayed out in the middle of the street, the, the entrails that stretched out across the street horribly, the body sort of pink and shiny. And then when I drove back towards the office after, after two days in the center to file my way on, on the number one ring road in the car was blocked by a line of tanks stretched across the whole road. I mean, it, it was a city under occupation, but for several days, the hold of the troops uh, in the midst of this outraged population was not at all secure. The rumors were flying thick and fast of civil war. Some troops were clearly on the side of the students. They weren't going to, to fire. And stories of some tanks pointing their guns towards the outside of the city because there might be other elements of the army who were going to take them on. Total confusion. Those reports turned out to be false, of course. But most foreigners had left, and, and I then left because um, my wife, Alison, was by then facing this operation. We'd flown her out to Hong Kong. I joined her in Hong Kong, where, of course, I found almost similar mood of outrage. A taxi driver who met me at the airport had, you know, black flags on his, on his taxi. And it was just an air of a city in mourning. And the morning, I, I learned that a student of Hong Kong had not come back to the hotel. So we are worried where they are, and I received some information that they are now, they, some of them were in the hospital. So on the morning, I went to the hospital to get them. And then I got them, you know, I, I don't know why I, I'm able to find them, in a way, and then get them back to the hotel. Were they injured, or? Yes, they, they were injured a bit, not too serious. They were injured, but then the shocking is to see what inside the hospital when you see a lot of injured people inside the hospital. So which hospital did you go to? In a very hospital near the square. I don't exactly remember the name, actually, uh, but I was is on, on walking distance. I think I walked for about 15 to 20 minutes, and I got there. And then I got the students. Inside the hospital, you saw a lot of injured people, and in some room, you know, you saw the bodies. And so it's quite a horrid sight. And uh, we got the student back uh, from the hospital and back to the Beijing hotel. And then when we were back in the Beijing hotel, the rumor was the army will be coming into the hotel because all the journalists and the activists were inside the hotel. So there's some rumors that it's not safe anymore to be in the hotel. So we moved to another hotel uh, nearby called the Wang Fuzhen Hotel. And we stayed there on the June 4th. And then uh, we start our plan to go back to Hong Kong at the time. Yes, and were you, I mean, when you then go to um, Beijing Airport, I mean, were you able to easily get out or was it difficult? Yeah, I think um, uh, at that time we get a plane to uh, transfer us back, all back to Hong Kong. So I remember on the June 5th, uh, we, are, we were able to get a car to transport all of us to the airport. So I it's okay, you know, that trip 
uh, luckily that nothing happened on that trip and everyone is safe and everyone was in the uh, airport going through the uh, immigration and then get to the plane everyone was happy and uh, that uh, we are finally safe and I remember that uh, cabin crew start to distribute the towel and everyone is oh finally you know we are going to leave uh, this place that hurt us everyone felt that relief that we are on the plane uh, but then, then suddenly some public security guys come in and say that they want to check to our passport. And once they check my passport, and they said that I have to go. So I was the one that was invited out of the plane. And then I was given no choice. But because they said if I did not leave the plane, the plane cannot leave. So I decided that, you know, no choice. Uh, I have to leave the plane. So I left the plane and then they take me to a room in the airport starting then the plane was able to leave for hong kong and therefore the news that i was arrested was uh, being all broadcast in hong kong but then they brought me back to the hotel they do not bring me to the jail or anything like that so i think i'm able to go into the hotel and i was able not to communicate outside but outside can call me so I think that's the result of the campaign in Hong Kong. I mean that once the people know that I was arrested, there's a, there's a great protest or, you know, uh, people are really angry and worried and they try to go to the governor's house and then demand that the governor at that time do something for me. Of course, I learned that uh, Martin Lee uh, went in to see the governor at that time and asked that uh, uh, he had to make sure that the, the British government intervened. So I, I think in that atmosphere, uh, and then the people are crying out for my safety, so they allow the organizer in Hong Kong, the Hong Kong Alliance, to contact me and call me up. And I'm able to sp speak to the people in Hong Kong to say that, oh, I'm now in the hotel, but I don't know what will happen. So I think uh, that part, when I look back, it meant that they are not too certain how to deal with me and they don't want to enrage further the China Hong Kong people by my arrest. And then so they want me to say that I'm safe in the hotel. And then uh, the communication was allowed at that time, which is uh, when, when we you know, look back, it's quite uncommon. And then I have to write a self-confession letter saying that I was wrong. I asked the group in Hong Kong whether I should, so I, am I wrong in a way? And they said, wrong, wrong, wrong. So I think uh, everyone want me to go back and not to be in China. Uh, and How do you mean wrong, wrong, wrong? Wrong. For what? For, you know, wrong mean that am I wrong? So they understand because confession, self-confession letter is something that admitting that you are wrong. So... Uh, oh, I see. So they're encouraging you yeah, to... Yeah, encouraging me, wrong, wrong, wrong. And I said, am I wrong? Uh, <laughs> they say, wrong, wrong, wrong. And, and therefore, they, there's a signal that, you know, sort of, you know, maybe I should go back. It's better than, you know, uh, staying on. So I signed a confession letter, and then I was able to go back, went back uh, to Beijing on the 8th of June. So I spent three days there. Uh, no, you can say no torture, it's only interrogation and then 
uh, I was able to get come back to Hong Kong. And I think the whole reason for that, you know, uh, is because the people of Hong Kong are boiling with anger. And then I think the Chinese government do not want to add uh, any uh, uh, more element of uh, that enraged people into uh, the situation at that time. So I was able to come back and I would say that I'm saved by the protest movement in Hong Kong. My thanks to Lee Chukyan of the Hong Kong Alliance in support of patriotic democratic movements in China and former BBC journalist Tim Luard. Hugh Chiverton, head of the English Language Programme Service at RTHK, remembers how the staff at the radio station reacted on that day, as does former RTHK reporter Francis Moriarty. It was a very striking time, a very, a very memorable time. When it actually happened, it was a massive shock, enormous shock, psychological shock to people in Hong Kong because people had thought this is it, really. People had thought that China was going to change completely and that these young people were going to be the ones who changed it with, with support from Hong Kong. There's an enormous amount of sympathy in Hong Kong for the students. And of course, this had been going on for a long time. It had been pretty protracted. So when it did happen and when the tanks moved in, uh, as a so it was a, a real blow. It was kind of a running news story, which wasn't so common in those days, I guess, because things came in in dribs and drabs, and there were rumours, and there was talks of talk of a coup or a revolt by sections of the army, and so on. So the news was, as I say, coming in in little bits. Nobody really knew what had happened. We had some pictures and so on, but what they actually meant, you know, took a long time to become clear, and for many, it's still not clear. And so there were individuals that we spoke to who had been there, and there were journalists journalists and so on, English-speaking journalists who would give an account. But in general, it was an enormous psychological blow for Hong Kong that I really remember. As I was the newbie on the, on the desk in, in Hong Kong, I had to go out and cover the demonstrations in Hong Kong. So I covered two million person marches, uh, everybody marching in silence, uh, people who were elderly in wheelchairs, people who looked like they'd have a hard time getting up and down the stairs, walking from Central all the way down the Eastern uh, Expressway, coming back around to the old NCNA, New China News Agency, Xinhua office in Happy Valley and corner of Queens Road East. And it was very impressive. It, marching in silence, all you can hear are feet and occasional crying of a kid. And, and I thought, well, these folks, are, these folks are pretty awesome, right? And then in the midst of this, when martial law was imposed in Beijing. There was a big demonstration outside Xinhua. It was also a real, honest-to-goodness Typhoon 8. I mean, it was the real deal with all the rain. And by the time I walked from my house in Happy Valley, I, I wasn't working, but I thought, I have to see this. And by the time I got to the intersection, I think someplace between 40 and 80,000 people were out there for the demonstration. And I'm basically soaked through, and I'm trying to keep my notebook dry and at one point in the middle of this, I think it was Chen Meng Kuang. Subsequently, he would become one of the first group of legislators to be elected. He stood up and said, let's show our solidarity with the people in Beijing. Put down your umbrellas and take the hoods off your head. Everybody takes off the hood. Everybody puts down the umbrellas and they're standing there in driving rain. And, and I'm trying to take notes under my little worthless mm -hmm. poncho. And I hear around me, and people are putting up umbrellas over me. And I said, oh, no, it's okay. I'll stand here with everybody else and whatever. And they said, no, no, no. We want you to tell our story. And I still have 
the notebook with the water splatters on it. There was a general strike that was called, or a kind of day of mourning. Every car was driving around with a little black flag on the aerial. And then on the day where there was a sort of a general strike, which the government just sort of stepped back basically and said, OK, do what you like, we're not going to punish anyone. It was felt that we should keep going at RTHK because we were kind of an essential service. But what we did, and this was just kind of the employees spontaneously, more or less, we had a little ceremony. So we went out into Broadcast Drive, into the road, and everyone just basically went out there and bowed three times to the north and tribute to them. So it was a very, very moving, it was a very, very moving, psychologically charged time for everybody in Hong Kong. My thanks to Lee Chuk Yan, Tim Luard, Hugh Chiverton and Francis Moriarty. Thanks for listening and join me next week on Hong Kong Heritage. <laughs>